7. Ange, where large portions of the country are broken up into a mass of stupendous, rock-walled ridges and all but bottomless chasms, a river generally flows in the barrancas between narrow banks, which occasionally disappear altogether, leaving the water to a rush between abruptly ascending mountain sides, as far as the first of the large barrancas was concerned, near the top of which we were standing, we could for some little distance follow its windings toward the west and its several tributaries could be made out in the landscape by the contours of the ridges. Barranca de Cobra is known in its course by different names. Near the mine of Uruk the Tarahumare word for Barranca. It is called Barranca de Uruk, and here its yawning chasm is over 4.000 feet deep. Even the intrepid Jesuit missionaries at first gave up the idea of descending into it, and the Indians told them that only the birds knew how deep it was. The traveler as he stands at the edge of such gaps wonders whether it is possible to get across them. They can in a few places be crossed, even with animals if these are lightly loaded, but it is a task hard upon flesh and blood. It was in these barrancas, that I was to find the Gentile pagan Indians I was so anxious to meet. From where I stood looking at it the country seemed forgotten, lonely, and touched by human hand. Shrubs and trees were clinging to the rocky brows of the barrancas, and vegetation could be seen wherever there was sufficient earth on the mountain and the sides of the ravines, but, on the whole, the country looked rather barren and lifeless. Still, it did not take us long to find traces of human beings. Our tents were pitched on an old trinchera, cut deep into a rough ledge not far off was the rough carving of a serpent, sixty feet long, that must have been left here by a race and a seed to the Tarahumares, and a little further off we came upon the ruins of a modern Tarahumare house. It seems as if the Indians must extract a living out of the rocks and stones, though when we got down into the barranca and into the ravines we came upon patches of land that could be cultivated, and there were some small areas of pasture, although extremely precipitous. The first thing to do was to dispatch the guide into the valleys and gorges below, which from our camping place could not be seen, only surmised, that he might persuade some Tarahumares to act as carriers on an excursion I contemplated making through the region. In a couple of days a party was made up, consisting, besides myself, of Mr. Taylor, the guide, two Mexicans, and five Tarahumares with their gobernator. Bundles weighing from 40 to 75 pounds were placed on the backs of the Indians and the Mexicans, even the guide took a small pack, though it would have been beneath the dignity of the gobernator to take a load upon himself, but his company was valuable on account of his great influence with his people. It was an exceedingly interesting excursion of several days' duration. Owing to the presence of the gobernator the Indians received us well. Nobody ran away, though all were extremely shy and bashful, and the women turned their backs towards us. But after a while they would offer us beans from a pot cooking over the fire. They served them in earthenware bowls with a couple of tortillas corn cakes. In another vessel, which they passed around among us, they offered the flavoring coarse salt and some small child Spanish peppers, which vegetable is cultivated and much relished by the Tarahumares, but the most interesting dish was Iskiat, which I now tasted for the first time, it is made from toasted corn, which is mixed with water while being ground on the matapi until it assumes the consistency of a thick soup, owing to certain fresh herbs that are often added to the corn, it may be of a greenish color, but it is always cool and tempting. After having tramped for several days over many miles of exceedingly rough country, I arrived late one afternoon at a cave where a woman was just making this drink. I was very tired and at a loss how to climb the mountain side to my camp. 
some 2.000 feet above, but after having satisfied my hunger and thirst with some iskiot, offered by the hospitable Indians, I at once felt new strength, and, to my own astonishment, climbed the great height without much effort, after this I always found iskiot a friend in need, so strengthening and refreshing that I may almost claim it as a discovery, interesting to mountain climbers and others exposed to great physical exertions, the preparation does not, however, agree with a sedentary life, as it is rather indigestible, the dress of the Tarahuwer is always very scanty, even where he comes in contact with the whites, one may see the Indians in the mining camps, and even in the streets of the city of Chihuahua, walking about naked, except for a breached cloth of course, homespun woolen material, held up around the waist with a girdle woven in characteristic designs, some may supplement this national costume with a tunic, or short poncho, and it is only right to add that most of the men are provided with well-made blankets, which their women weave for them, and in which they wrap themselves when they go to feasts and dances, the hair, when not worn loose, is held together with a home-woven ribbon, or a piece of cotton cloth rolled into a band, or with a strip of palm leaf, often men and women gather the hair in the back of the head, and men may also make a braid of it, the women's toilet is just as simple, a scrimpy woolen skirt is tied around the waist with a girdle, and over the shoulders is worn a short tunic, with which, however, many dispense when at home in the barranca, the women, too, have blankets, though with them they are not so much the rule as with the men, still, mothers with babies always wear blankets, to support the little ones in an upright position on their backs, the blanket being tightly wrapped around mother and child, the women nowadays generally wear sandals of the usual Mexican cowhide pattern, like the men, but there is ample evidence to prove that such was not the case in former times. The people are, former Indians, not especially fond of ornaments, and it is a peculiar fact that mirrors have no special attraction for them. They do not like to look at themselves. The women often wear ear ornaments made of triangular pieces of shell attached to bead strings, or deck themselves with strings of glass beads of which the large red and blue ones are favorites, and necklaces made from the seed of the coilacri majobi are used by both sexes, chiefly for medicinal purposes. The men wear only single strings of these seeds, while the necklaces of the women are wound several times around the neck. The shaman, or medicine man a priest and doctor combined is never without such a necklace when officiating at a feast. The seed is believed to possess many medicinal qualities, and for this reason children, too often wear it, peasant women in Italy and Spain use the same seed as a protection against evil, and even American women have been known to put strings of them on teething children as a soothing remedy, an important fact I established is that the Indians in the Barrancas, in this part of the country, use something like trencheras for the cultivation of their little crops, to obtain arable land on the mountain slopes the stones are cleared from a convenient spot and utilized in the construction of a wall below the field thus made, the soil is apt to be washed away by heavy rains, and the wall not only prevents what little earth there is on the place from being carried off, but also catches what may come from above, and in this way secures sufficient ground to yield a small crop. Fields thus made can even be plowed. On the slopes of one arroyo I counted six such terraces, and in the mountainous country on the Rio Fuerte, toward the state of Sinalo, Chile, beans, squashes, coilacrima joby and bananas are raised on trencheras placed across the arroyos that run down the hills. There they have the form of small terraces, and remind one of similar ones found farther north as ancient ruins. 
to such an extent that one might suppose that the tar of the wares had made use of the relics of antiquity. Mr. Hartman in one long arroyo thereabouts observed for at some distance from one another, they were from four to ten feet high, and as broad as the little arroyo itself, some eight to sixteen feet. Chapter VIII The houses of the Tarahumare's American cave dwellings of two-day frequent changes of abode by the Tarahumare the patio or dancing place the original cross of America Tarahumare storehouses. The houses we saw on this excursion were of remarkable uniformity, and as the people have had very little, if any, contact with the whites, it is reasonable to infer that these structures are original with them. On a sloping mesa six families were living in such buildings not far from one another. These houses had a frame of four forked poles, planted firmly into the ground, to form a square or rectangle. Two joists are laid over them parallel to each other. Under one of them, in the front of the house, is the doorway. The joists support the feet roof of loose pine boards, laid sometimes in a double layer. The rear joist is often a foot or so lower than the front one, which causes the roof to slant towards the back. The boards may simply be logs split into end with the bark taken off. The walls are made by leaning boards, ends up, against the roof, while the door consists of a number of boards, which are removed or replaced according to convenience. In most instances the doorway is protected from the outside against wind and weather by a lean-do. Access to the house is gained sideways, even where a small vestibule is built, extra poles being driven in the ground to support the porch roof boards, while this style of architecture may be said to be typical throughout the Tarahumar country. There are many variations. Generally attempts are made to construct a more solid wall, boards or poles being laid lengthwise, one on top of the other, and kept in place by sliding the ends between double uprights at the corners, or they may be placed ends up along the side of the house, or regular stone walls may be built, with or without mud for mortar. Even in one and the same house all these kinds of walls may be observed, a type of house seen throughout the Tarahumare country as well as among the pagan Tarahumares in the Barranca de Cobra, is shown in the illustration. It is also quite common to see a framework of only two upright poles connected with a horizontal beam, against which boards are leaning from both sides, making the house look like a gable roof set on the ground. There are, however, always one or more logs laid horizontally and overhung by the low eaves of the roof, while the front and rear are carelessly filled in with boards or logs, either horizontally or standing on ends. In the hot country this style of house may be seen thatched with palm leaves, or with grass. The dwelling may also consist only of a roof resting on four uprights shuttle, or it may be a mere shed. There are also regular log cabins encountered with locked corners, especially among the southern Tarahumares. Finally, when a Tarahumare becomes civilized, he builds himself a house of stone and mud, with a roof of boards, or thatch, or earth. It is hardly possible to find within the Tarahumare country two houses exactly alike. Although the main idea is always easily recognized, the dwellings, though very airy, afford sufficient protection to people who are by no means sensitive to drafts and climatic changes. The Tarahumares do not expect their houses to be dry during the wet season, but are content when there is some dry spot inside. If the cold troubles them too much, they move into a cave. Many of the people do not build houses at all but are permanent or transient cave dwellers. This fact I thoroughly investigated in subsequent researches, extending over a year and a half, and covering the entire width and breadth of the Tarahumare country, in this land of weather-worn porphyry and interstratified sandstone. Natural caves are met with everywhere, in which the people find a convenient and safe shelter. 
although it may be said that houses are their main habitations, still the Tarahumares live in caves to such an extent that they may be fitly called the American cave dwellers of the present age. Caves were man's first abode, and they are found in certain geological formations in all parts of the globe. Human imagination always peopled the deep, dark caverns with terrible monsters guarding treasures, and legends and fairy tales still cling about many of them. Shallow caves, however, have from the earliest time attracted man to seek shelter in them, just as the animals took refuge in them against the inclemency of the weather. Prehistoric man in Europe was a cave dweller, and modern investigations have given us a clear and vivid picture of the life of the ancient race, who existed in France while the mammoth and the reindeer were roaming over the plains of Western Europe. As civilization advanced, under changing climatic conditions, and as man began to improve his tools and implements, he deserted the caves and preferred to live in houses of his own building, but a long time after the caves had been abandoned as abodes of the living, they were still used for interring the dead. Do we not remember the story told in Genesis, how Abraham bought for 400 shekels a cave from Ephraim that he might bury Sarah there and had a family too? The cave dwellers of France vanished many thousand years ago, but there are yet in several parts of the globe, for instance, in Tunis and in Central Africa. Races who still adhere to the custom of living in caves, although their condition of life is different from that of the Andaluvian cave dwellers. In Mexico the cave dwellers are in a transitory state, most of them having adopted houses and sheds, but many of them are still unable to perceive why they should give up their safe and comfortable natural shelters for rickety abodes of their own making. Padre Juan Fonte, the pioneer missionary to the Tarahumares, who penetrated into their country 18 leagues from San Pablo toward Guachalchik, speaks of the numerous caves in that country and relates that many of them were divided into small houses. Other records, too, allude to the existence of cave dwellers in that part of the Sierra Madre. Still, the fact of there being cave dwellers today in Mexico was until recently known only to the Mexicans living in their neighborhood, who regard this condition of things as a matter of course. While most of the Tarahumares live permanently on the highlands, a great many of them move for the winter down into the Barranca, on account of its warmer temperature, and, if they have no house, they live wherever they find a convenient shelter, preferably a cave, but for want of better accommodations they content themselves with a rock shelter, or even a spreading tree. This would suit them well enough were it not that, at least in recent years, there has not been rain enough in the Barrancas to enable the people to raise there the corn they need, they therefore go back to the highlands in March because in the higher altitudes rainfall can be depended upon with more certainty. The general custom among the Indians living near to a barranca is to plant two crops of corn, one in early March on the crest, and the other one in June, at the beginning of the rainy season, down in the barranca, and after having harvested at both places they retire to their winter quarters to enjoy themselves. Sometimes the cave of a family is not more than half a mile from their house, and they live alternately in one or the other abode because the Tarahumares still retain their nomadic instincts, and even those living permanently on the highlands change their domicile very frequently. One reason is that they follow their cattle, another that they improve the land by living on it for a while, but there are still other reasons for moving so much about, which are known only to themselves. In summer many people leave their caves on account of the scorpions, tarantulas, and other pests that infest them. In front of the entrance to the cave there is generally a wall of stone, or of stone and mud, raised to the height of a man's chest, as a protection against wind and weather, wild beasts, etc. The cave is fitted up just like the houses, 
with grinding stone, earthen jars and bowls, baskets, gourds, etc. The fire is always in the middle, without hearth or chimney, and the jars in which the food is cooked rest on three stones. A portion of the ground is leveled and made smooth for the family to sleep on. As often as not there are skins spread out on the floor. Sometimes the floor space is extended by an artificial terrace in front of the cave. In a few cases the floor is plastered with adobe. And I have seen one cave in which the sides, too, were dressed in the same way. Generally there are one or two storehouses in the caves. And these constitute the chief improvement. Of course, there are a good many caves where there are no storehouses. Still they are the striking feature of the cave. A few times I found walls of stone and mud erected inside of the cave, breast high, to partition off one or two rooms for the use of the family, as well as for the goats and sheep. Often, enclosures are built of wooden fences for the domesticated animals and occupy the greater part of the cave. The largest inhabited cave I have seen was nearly a hundred feet in width and from twenty to forty feet in depth. If caves are at all deep, the Indians live near the mouth. They never excavate caves. Nor do they live in dugouts. I heard of one arroyo, where six inhabited caves, only 30 or 50 yards apart, can be seen at one time, but this is a rare case. Generally they are farther apart, maybe a hundred yards to a mile, or more, and that suits the Tarahumers very well, each family preferring to live by itself. In one place I saw a cave, or rather a shelter under a big boulder, utilized as a dwelling, and here a kind of parapet had been built of stone gravel terrace fashion, to enlarge the area of the cave floor, inhabited caves are never found in inaccessible places, as is the case with cliff dwellings in the southwestern part of the United States, where caves are difficult of access, the Indians may place a wooden ladder, or rather, a notched tree trunk, which is the national style of staircase, once I saw steps cut into the soft, rock, solidified volcanic ash, leading up to a dwelling, there was also a kind of settee cut out of the cave wall, Many of the caves are remarkably symmetrical in shape, and naturally quite comfortable. Caves may be found in the arroyos in the highlands, as well as in the barrancas. If I were to designate a region where they are more plentiful than elsewhere, I should mention the country from Karakak towards Uruk, and also to the north and west of Norogachik. Many caves have within the memory of man been permanently abandoned, owing to the occupancy of the land by the Mexicans, as the Indians dislike to be near the whites. The Tarahumers are not the only tribe still clinging to caves, as we have seen. The Pimas, too, are, to a limited extent, cave dwellers, and the same is the case with the northern Tetawans, as well as with the allied Warogios in their small area. Are these cave dwellers related to the ancient cliff dwellers in the southwestern part of the United States and northern Mexico? Decidedly not. Their very aversion to a living more than one family in a cave and their lack of sociability mark a strong contrast with the ancient cliff dwellers, who were by nature gregarious. The fact that the people live in caves is in itself extremely interesting, but this alone does not prove any connection between them and the ancient cliff dwellers. Although the Tarahumar is very intelligent, he is backward in the arts and industries. It is true that the women weave admirable designs in girdles and blankets but this seems to be the utmost limit of their capabilities. In the caves they sometimes draw with ochre clumsy figures of animals and women, and on some rocks may be seen outlines of feet scratched with stone in order to alleviate their imprint in this world when they die. Tarahumare pottery is exceedingly crude as compared with the work found in the old cliff dwellings, and its decoration is infantile as contrasted with the cliff dwellers' work. 
the cliff dwellers brought the art of decoration to a comparatively high state, as shown in the relics found in their dwellings, but the cave dweller of today shows no suggestion of such skill, moreover, he is utterly devoid of the architectural gift which resulted in the remarkable rock structures of the early cliff dwellers, these people as far as concerns their cave dwelling habits cannot be ranked above troglodytes, the Tarahumir never lives all his life in one house or cave, nor will he, on the other hand, leave it forever, he rarely stays away from it for more than two or three years, a family, after inhabiting a house for a time may suddenly decide to move it, even if it is built of stone, the reason is not always easy to tell, one man moved his house because he found that the sun did not strike it enough, after a death has occurred in a dwelling, even though it was that of a distant relative incidentally staying with the family, the house is destroyed, or the cave permanently abandoned, and many other superstitious apprehensions of one kind or another may thus influence the people. Very often a man moves for the sake of benefiting the land, and after tearing down his house he immediately plants corn on the spot on which the house stood. A family may thus change its abode several times a year, or once a year, or every other year. The richest man in the Tarahumir country, now dead, had five caves, and moved as often as ten times in one year. A never-absent feature of the Tarahumir habitation, be it house or cave, is a level, smooth place in front of it. This is the dancing place, or patio, on which he performs his religious exercises, and he may have more than one. The formation of the land may even oblige him to build terraces to obtain space enough for his religious dances. On this patio, which measures generally about ten yards in every direction, one, two, or three crosses are planted. As the central object of all ceremonies except those in the cult of the sacred cactus hickory, the cross is generally about a foot high, sometimes it stands two feet above ground, it is made of two sticks of an equal length, preferably sticks of pine wood, tied together in the form of the Latin cross, I saw two crosses raised outside of a man's house, which were formed by the natural growth of small pine trees, and these were four feet high, the shamans, for their curing, use small crosses three or four inches long. It is a well-known fact that on their arrival in America the Spaniards to their amazement found Indians in possession of the cross, omitting here the cross of Palenque, the symbol of a tree, the tree of life. It is safe to say that the original cross of most Mexican tribes is the Greek cross, though the Latin was also used, to them the former is a fundamental religious moment, as indicating the four corners of the world, but a word for cross, or anything corresponding to it, does not occur in the language of any of the tribes known to me. Nevertheless the cross the Greek, to the Indian the symbol of a cosmic idea, is pecked on the rocks, or drawn on the sand, or made in corresponding strokes with medicine over the patient's body. With the Tarahumir the cross is the pivot around which all his ceremonies and festivals move. He always dances to the cross, and on certain occasions he adds shaved strings of beads, ears of corn, and other offerings to it. It is used by the heathen as well as by the Christian Tarahumirs. The question is whether this tribe has changed its form since its contact with the whites or whether the cross was originally like the one in use today. From many of the Tarahumirs' utterances I incline to think that their cross represents a human figure with arms outstretched, and is an embodiment of Father Sunday the perfect man. When two crosses are placed on the patio, the smaller stands for the moon. This conception also explains the custom of setting up three crosses at the principal dance, the Rutuberi, the third cross representing probably the morning star. Among Christianized natives the three crosses may come gradually to mean the Trinity, 
On one occasion I saw a cross at least ten feet high with a cross beam only one foot long, raised next to two crosses of ordinary size, all standing on the patio of a well-to-do Indian, and the inference was easily drawn that the high cross was meant for father-son. The northern Tepehuans say that the cross is Tadadios, the Christianized Indian's usual designation of God. The impression that the cross represents a human figure gains further probability by the fact that a cross is erected on the special patio of the dead, and I have noticed that this cross is moved in the course of the ceremonies to the principal dancing place, to see the dancing and drink Tesvino, as the Indians explained it. Surely, this cross represented the dead. On this page are seen the front and rear view of a cross which is of great interest, although its shape is evidently an exaggerated imitation of a Catholic cross or crucifix. I came upon it in the mountainous country east of Morlos, and the Tarahumers near the ranch of Colorado's presented it to me. It had apparently not been made long ago, and was painted with red ochre. The arms had been tied on in the usual fashion with a twine of fiber, the mode of fastening it appearing most distinctly on the back of the cross. Seen from the front the designs on the head, or the uppermost part, represent the morning star, the dots being his companions, the other stars but it is significant that this constellation is also called the ice of the cross. The dots on the other side of the cross are also meant for stars, in order that, as the Indian explained to me, Tadadios may see the stars where they are dancing, he lives in the stars a belief evidently arising from Catholic influence. The human figures painted on the cross are intended to emphasize its meaning. The most important of these human-like contours are those directly below the junction of the arms with the vertical stem. They are evidently repetitions of the main cross, the arms being expressed in the crude carvings, what the various pairs of curved sidelines mean, I am unable to say, what is of more importance to the Tarahumar than his dwelling is his storehouse, which he always builds before his domicile, in fact, his personal comfort is made secondary even to that of his domestic animals. As a survival of the time when he had no house at all may be noted the fact that husband and wife, after having been away on a journey for several days or longer, do not on the first night after their return sleep in the house or cave, but at some convenient place near the storehouse. These storehouses are always well put together, though many of them are not large enough to accommodate a medium-sized dog, the Tarahumar's preferring number to size. In them he stores what little property he has beyond that in actual use, chiefly corn and beans, some spare clothing and cotton cloth, hickory birds, etc. The door of the house is made from one or more short boards of pine wood, and is either provided with an ingeniously constructed wooden lock, or the boards are simply plastered up with mud along the four edges. The Tarahumar rarely locks his house on leaving it, but he is ever careful to fasten the door of his storehouse securely, and to break open a storehouse sealed up in the manner described is considered the most heinous crime known to the tribe. Mexicans have committed it and have had to pay for it with their lives. The most common kind of storehouse is from four to six feet high, round, and built of stones and mud, with a roof of pine boards, weighed down with earth and stones. Other storehouses of similar size are square and built of boards with corners interlocked. They, too, are covered with boards. These diminutive buildings are often seen inside of caves, or else they are erected in places difficult of access, on tops of boulders, for instance. Sometimes they are seen in lonely places. More often, however, near the dwellings, and the little round structures make a curious effect when erected on boulders in the vicinity of some hut, looking, as they do, like so many diminutive factory chimneys, 
they proclaim more clearly than anything else the fact that when the people reach that stage in their development in which they begin to till the soil, they soon become careful of the little property they have, in marked distinction to the savage and nomadic tribes, who are always lavish and improvident. I have seen as many as ten storehouses of the kind described, and once even fourteen near one dwelling, but generally one or two only are found nearby. Small caves, especially when difficult to reach and hidden from view, may be utilized as storehouses, and are then sealed up in the same way as the other varieties are. Sometimes regular log houses are used. Chapter IX Arrival at Batopilas Ascent from Batopilas to the Highlands of the Sierra Tarahumir who had been in Chicago an old-timer flight of our native guide and its disastrous consequences Indians burn the grass all over the country traveling becomes too difficult for the animals Mr. Taylor, and I go to Zapuri its surroundings the Pithia in season. We continued our way toward the south, crossing Barranca de Cobra where it is 3.300 feet deep. The track we followed was fairly good but led along several dangerous precipices, over which two burros rolled and were killed. The highest point we reached on the track over the highlands south of the Barranca was 8.300 feet. There seemed to be a divide here, the climate being cool and moist, and the farthest ranges toward the south and west enveloped in mist and fog. Although Barranca de Batopilas is not as narrow and impressive as the Barranca we had just left, still the mighty gap, as we looked into its hazy bottom from the highlands, presented an imposing, awe-inspiring sight. Following the windings of the well-laid-out road we descended into the canon and made camp a few miles this side of the town of Batopilas. The silver mines here, which are old and famous, were discovered in the 17th century. I was cordially received by Mr. A. R. Shepard, the well-known mining expert, whose courtesy and kindness were much appreciated by the members of the expedition. My recent experience had convinced me that the only way to study the natives properly was to live among them for a length of time, and as, 